Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. I'm never ready. I know. I think we just got to we got to jump right into it. Why can't I be Lou Reed? <laughs> Honestly, why can't I just tell you like, no, I don't want to. You know, <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to do it right now. <laughs> you know how miserable of a life that is? <laughs> I'm just too to... busy petting the dog. <laughs> no, I don't feel like it. No, right no, no, right no, not tomorrow. Maybe next week. <laughs> it's not like I don't feel like it. It's just like I'm not ready. Uh huh. You know what I mean? I'm just not ready. Well, unfortunately, we're not one of the luminaries of 20th century <laughs> music. We're fucking podcasters, so we just got to do it. No, but that's the thing. The reason why we'll never get there is because we do it. <laughs> Maybe we should stop. <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo in, in the nightmare of existential dread. <laughs> Welcome to the Velvet Underground Part 2. So when we last left Lou Reed, future lead singer of the Velvet Underground, he'd gotten a job at Pickwick Records writing rip-off songs that capitalized on the popular music trends of the early 60s. In the process, Lou Reed, under the guise of being a full band called The Primitives, he'd written a strange yet catchy song called The Ostrich. And Lou's boss at Pickwick, Terry Phillips, thought that the song was strong enough to be toured for some extra cash. So Terry set about finding musicians to fill out the rest of the Primitives touring band, guys that not only looked the part, but who also had the musical chops to handle something as unconventional as the ostrich. Let's hear just a little bit more of the ostrich, like where it kind of goes right, in the last yeah. minute, uh, and just how fucking weird it is. <laughs> this is something that could be on Dr. Demento, easily, and probably was at some point.
What are they saying? Do the ostrich! Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, there are two moments in there where you can hear the Velvet Underground. There's like this small bridge that lasts about 10 seconds mm-hmm. uh, that sounds like something off of, I'd say specifically like the second Velvet Underground album. Uh, and then there's that, yeah! That's I like that. That's so great. Like that's like, oh, that's Lou Reed. It's very cool. It's great to like that. That song is like a a weird like peek into the future. Now, as it happened, Terry found his other two primitives at a party in Manhattan when he met avant-garde musician Tony Conrad and more importantly, avant-garde musician John Cale, who had formed the other half of the Velvet Underground's original creative heart. Born in a small southern Wales mining village called Garnet to a coal mining father and a school teacher mother, John Cale was a musical prodigy who felt right from the beginning that music gave him a stronger sense of who he was as a person. Yes, you make him sound like a, a, the beginning of a Pixar movie <laughs> where Miguel just wants to play the guitar, but grandma won't let him. <laughs> Just a couple of years after he took his first piano lessons as a child, John Cale was composing his own classical music-influenced pieces, which caught the attention of BBC Wales, who wanted to include the little Welsh genius for a radio show about talented children. This is just writing itself. (laughs) This is amazing. Yeah, it's like Lil Cale. Who's going to write that? Who's going to do that cartoon? It's up to us. (laughs) And so, after a short interview, the presenters asked John to play them a piece of his own composition. What John played, pre-puberty, mind you, was a piece of his own making that was heavily influenced by Stravinsky's ballet, The Rite of Spring. See, upon later reflection, John Cale considered the rhythmic opening thump of The Rite of Spring to be the original piece of rock and roll. And considering how Stravinsky actually did tell his audience to go to hell when a near riot (laughs) sprung forth at the ballet's premiere in a scene reminiscent of fights breaking out at early punk shows, Kale probably isn't wrong. I like that. The Rites of Spring. (laughs) That's cool. Is there a band called that? There is a band called The Rites of Spring. Absolutely. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Rites of Spring. They're... uh, I think it was the other half. I think, if I remember correctly, Rites of Spring uh, no, was No, the one- Riots of Spring. Oh, the Riots of Spring. No. <laughs> no, just Rites of Spring. I think it's like half of Minor Threat. Uh, I believe I'll have to check that out later to make sure. Uh, but yeah, I think Rites of Spring was like half, after Minor Threat, like half became Fugazi and half became Rites of Spring. But what about the Riots? <laughs> <laughs> well, the Riots are really interesting because it is like a punk thing because the Riots, it was a fight between the uh, kind of upper crust people up in the balcony uh, who were there for a ballet and the people down below who were the bohemians the right. artists like there were these already before like there was a fight planned pretty much before the show and the show the rite of spring like especially the beginning is so intense like something no no one had ever heard before so they start the upper class starts fighting with the lower class and then all of a sudden Everybody turns and starts attacking the orchestra. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and that's when Stravinsky's like, go to hell, you sons of bitches. <laughs> but let's... So the riots of spring. <laughs> yes, the riots of spring. Well, let's hear uh, one of the opening parts of right of the right of spring called... <laughs> I, yeah, I made you, you do it. <laughs> it's called Adoration of the Earth.
Well, I mean, if you don't want to write, then don't write a riot soundtrack. Because <laughs> that's what it sounds like. It's beautiful. I love it. But it's a perfect soundtrack to exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it's it. That's what it's. It, that sounds like the lead up to a riot. Like that sounds like every yes. like one guy like starts punching and like kind of starts like running into another guy. People are getting pissed off at each other. Yeah, and then all the while, like on stage, there is, are all these you know ballet dancers uh, that are doing these really fucking like strange, strange dances. The Rite of Spring was like nothing anyone had ever seen before. <laughs> uh, it's fucking okay. rock and roll. We're explaining this while John Cale is like ten years old, <laughs> just sitting there, be like, "Uh huh, what are you guys done?" <laughs> and so here we are, back in the room again. Uh huh. Here we're back. We're back at the BBC interview. Okay, right so, now. Yes. Okay. Hey, I'm so good at this. <laughs> Okay, so John's original piece was a toccata in the style of Cachatorian. And as you said, the BBC radio people were really impressed. They took his score to the producers and then they came back with all this recording equipment and said, okay, now play it for us. And this like little like 12-year-old John Cale sits at the piano and says like, right, well, where's my score though? You had it last. <laughs> and the producers were all like, ah. Where did we put it? Did we leave it in the car? And he's just like, you know what? John Cale decided, I'm going to just do this. I'm going to just do this live. Why not? Fuck it. We're doing it live. (laughs) Exactly. He's like, I remember the gist of it. I know the first part. So John starts playing at the piano like a little Schroeder. (laughs) And as he's playing, he finds the second half of the music he wrote. And he's just pounding away at the keys while he's just mesmerized by the fact that he's getting through all this while improvising as he goes along and then just finishes it beautifully. Then he just looks up from the piano, just breathing heavily, like long hair down his face, thinking like, wow, that was easy and exhilarating. Like that recording only took two and a half minutes. But within that small period of time, John's musical life had changed forever. Yeah. That's all he wants to do now. Like he wants to play music and he wants to improvise. But most importantly, he wants to write music and conduct it like the people with the wands. Yeah. That kind of thing. Oh, I, I actually I heard it's a baton. Yeah, it is. But yeah, it's not a wand. <laughs> But a baton, you usually hand it to someone. Only one person gets a baton. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you're not tossing it over to the trombone player. <laughs> yes. So you, it's your turn. <laughs> anyway, so... Now it's my turn on the trombone. Come up here. <laughs> Anything goes in Carolina's orchestra. Um, so, but anyways, John wasn't going to stick with the piano anymore. He was going to instead choose the viola. Now, what, what is the difference between a viola and a violin? Um, <laughs> it's a viola, actually. Uh, viola, okay. Yes, it's a viola, and it's, it, it's a violin, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, so a viola is lower and deeper sounding, and it's a little bit larger. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, John started playing because it was the only instrument left to play in the school orchestra, actually. Is that your fat guy voice? I'm playing the viola. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So, I mean, that was... I the- enjoy playing <laughs> So that's the truth, is the fact is that all the other instruments were taken, or maybe the only one left was the viola and the, the little cymbals that you play with your fingers. <laughs> and John had to make a choice. And luckily, good for us, and history, he chose the viola. So as the school violist, <laughs> and then as the Welsh Youth Orchestra violist... John Cale began touring, first playing shows around Wales, which was followed by a show in the Netherlands. Now, from just getting a taste of what life was like outside of a small, remote village, which is a feeling I could definitely relate to coming from a remote farming village in Texas, 
Kale knew that he was destined for other places. I told you, this is a moment. <laughs> <laughs> there must be more than this provincial life. I mean, he's Belle. Yeah. <laughs> oh, does that make Lou Reed the beast? <laughs> yes. You are correct. And Andy Warhol is Lumiere. <laughs> well, specifically, John Kale knew that he wanted to live in a city that in his mind was the place where brilliant things were happening 24 hours a day, all in the name of art. John Cale was setting his sights on New York City. Yes. Furthermore, like Lou Reed, John Cale had his musical horizons broadened by the radio. Except in Cale's case, he listened to Radio Luxembourg and The Voice of America, which was among our country's most brilliant cultural imperialism ideas. But by listening to those stations, John Cale was introduced to artists like Elvis Presley and John Coltrane, which both may have introduced the concept of cool to our young small town son of a coal miner. The coolest cat. Yeah, cool as Coltrane. He's the best. Yeah. But I mean, imagine being a you know, 15, 16 year old kid from a Welsh mining village and you hear John in 19, what, 55, 56, um, maybe a little bit later. But anyway, mid to late 50s and you hear that. That's going to blow your fucking mind. Yeah. Yeah. Because in America, I feel like they got jazz a little bit. We got jazz so much earlier. It was already a part of our cultural heritage at that point. Uh, but yeah, it was in our streets. It was downtown. Yeah. But for, yeah, small town whales, that shit sounds like it's from another planet. And that's the thing. John, he wanted to get to New York because he knew that that's where John Coltrane was sitting right yeah. there on the stoop <laughs> plane. Yeah. And so when John graduated from high school, he was determined to get there. So he, the best he could do was get into the music department at Goldsmith's Teacher College in London, which is a little closer to his goal. So the little airplane is flying from Wales to London on the old timey map. Yeah. So we see that we're getting there. Yeah, we're right? on the Temple of Doom map right now. Exactly. And so John there, he continued studying music and learning everything he could from his professors and practicing the viola every day. And everything's going well until they send John to a local grade school to teach the kids music, math and English for a few weeks. You know, there's a little internship kind of part of the deal thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything was going fine until like the school headmaster walked in on John reading the murders in Rue Morgue <laughs> to a class of eight year olds <laughs> who, by the way, were loving it. 
But the headmaster wasn't so thrilled. In fact, he was really pissed off. He complained to the warden at Goldsmiths. He said that John had no intention of becoming a teacher at this teacher school. And John said, yeah, actually, that's that's accurate. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to be a teacher. I, I got this scholarship to come here because I'm the son of a coal miner from a small <laughs> rural village. And I just want to learn about music and then go off and do something with it. He yeah. said that he saw a future as a like a living composer rather than a cataloger of the dead. Yeah, I mean, he's going and he's also going to the school because he's trying to he's trying to uh, fulfill his mother's wishes because his mother, it, it is really that same old like, oh, mama, you why oh, I, I want to be a musician. <laughs> and she's like, oh, it's a musician. It's so stupid. You should have become a doctor or a lawyer. He's like, OK, fine. I'll be a teacher. He's not Italian. <laughs> <laughs> he's Welsh. I know. Welsh is a, it's a hard accent to follow. It's, uh, impo- yeah, yeah. It's like it's uh, it's like more I want to be in these. I don't I don't know. It's, I just watched yeah. Torchwood and, you know, just try to do that one. Well, he wasn't going to be a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher. Cardiff. It's <laughs> kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> and so John uh, just continued to finish out school there. And after three years and pissing off everyone in the faculty, he graduated from Goldsmiths and got another scholarship. But this time the Leonard Bernstein scholarship at the Berkshire Music Center in Tanglewood, which is in Massachusetts. So it's closer. And he's now in America. <laughs> America, yeah. I mean, he's he is going to America, and like, and Leonard Bernstein was actively involved in this scholarship. It wasn't like a memorial fund or anything like that. Well, I mean, he would sign off on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was alive. Yeah, <laughs> he was there and everything. Yeah, and this is, I think, uh, just a couple of years after Leonard Bernstein wrote this wonderful piece of music for one of the most famous musicals to ever exist. Yeah, I believe it was dedicated to John Cale. (laughs) Puerto Rico, my heart's devotion, let it sink back in the ocean. (laughs) Always the hurricanes blowing, always the population growing, and the money owing. The sunlight streaming and the natives steaming. I like the island Manhattan. I know you know. Smoke on your pipe and good Buying a credit is so nice. One look at us and they charge twice. I have my own washing machine. What will you have though to keep clean? Skyscrapers blooming. Who wants to be in America? <laughs> the Puerto Ricans. <laughs> but that is America. John Wales. Poor, poor John Kale. Well- John Kale. You said John Wales. <laughs> from Kale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's coming from Wales. I know we, I know Wales and Puerto Rico are about the two most different places on earth, but the principle's still the same. <laughs> well, uh, I'm glad you defended that. So- yeah, it's a West Side Story. You know, it's like this is just a couple of years after you wrote that. And yeah, Leonard Bernstein is just, yeah, he's one of the great. Great American songwriters, especially this time. Mm. 
So John Cale, he he gets to Tanglewood to study music composition for the summer. So no more orchestras or teacher schools. He finally gets to stretch his wings a little bit and, and maybe think of some great musical pieces to put together that he's been working on. I remember he had one uh, one working title that he translated from Welsh and it's called In the Beginning There Was Shit. <laughs> Which is what, what you do when you're 19. I mean, yeah. what else? And in the original Welsh, it's... That's accurate. <laughs> it's an impossible language. <laughs> and so so John did have all these ideas. Like, he found out the school in Tanglewood had 88 pianos on the whole campus. And he's like, that's perfect. I'm going to write a piece where all 88 pianos have to be played at the same time in the same place. And then they have to explain to him that that is logistically impossible. Yeah, that's insane. You're no fun. <laughs> You're no fun. You have no big ideas. I don't know. I mean, it's void so... of imagination. So, you know what? Actually, what he came up with was like, why don't we put the pianos, all 88 pianos then, if we can't put them in a room, we'll put them out in the lake out back. <laughs> no, we're not going to throw them in the lake. Okay. All right. We're going to have 88 boats and every boat will have a piano on it and every piano will play one note and then we'll unplug the boats and, and then they sink into the lake. <laughs> That's such a great idea. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, he had wonderful ideas. But he said in his autobiography, my ideas were too radical for them. <laughs> they were too violent. They were too violent for them. Yeah. But they did let him perform one at the end of the summer program, mm -hmm. which uh, obviously he didn't tell them anything about, except that he promised that he wouldn't go near the lake. Yeah. So during his performance, he reaches into the piano, he takes out an axe and whacks it right in the middle of the table next to him. <laughs> and just people are running out. They're screaming. They're hysterical. They don't even know what's going on. They're like, I thought this was some sort of elite academy from Artsy Fartsy School. What the hell's going on, man? I'm scared. It's a bit of an overreaction. I know, but that's what John, he wanted that. He wanted all the emotions. Yeah, of course. He wanted all the reactions. He wanted to lead the audience to a certain place. And when they felt safe, boom, shock them out of their wells. Yeah. Now, John Cale had no interest in returning to even London, much less Wales. So he called up Leonard Bernstein himself. Can you believe that? You could just do that? You could just do that. Yeah. And he asked him if he could sell back his ticket home in exchange for cash to start a new life in America. See, Cale was determined to realize his dream of moving to New York City. And all he needed was a deposit to put down for a loft. Luckily, Bernstein thought this was a wonderful idea, so he agreed to the plan and wished John the best of luck. But I think that's amazing that, like, Leonard Bernstein was this weird fulcrum in the story of the Velvet Underground. If it wasn't for Leonard Bernstein, the Velvet Underground wouldn't exist. <laughs> Leonard, Leonard's like, thank you. I don't need any more fruit baskets. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. 
Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Once Kale got himself a place, he acquired a fat kitty named Marcus, which I think is nice, (laughs) and he got a job as a clerk at the Orientalia bookstore. The man who arranged John's employment, though, was most likely avant-garde composer John Cage. See, John Cage was involved with an experimental art and music movement in New York City called Fluxus. And Fluxus would end up opening a lot of doors for John Cale, heavily influencing what he'd later do with the Velvet Underground. Yes, the Fluxus movement. Fluxus meaning flowing or to flow. And movement meaning kind of the same thing. It's redundant. (laughs) It's silly and it's redundant. (laughs) Well, actually, the term fluxus is supposed to mean a few different things based on George McCunius's uh, manifesto, which he called manifesto. (laughs) So I believe. Okay, then. So what the manifesto says about fluxes is the first thing you do is you reject fine art. Okay. The elitism, the exclusivity. You know, you go to a museum and you see a fancy painting of a nobleman with his ugly children. Big deal. (laughs) That's boring. It's been done a million times. You know, we got to challenge this more. Yeah, I dig that. So the next thing you do is promote new art. And what is new art? Awesome. Wait for it. That's it. That's new art. That's new art. It's anything. It's anything. I said too much. Well, it's like John Cage's, uh, what, what is the piece called? 433. 433, where, you know, John Cage just goes up on stage and plays nothing. He does not go on stage. He actually gets a soloist. A, okay. A, a real, like a, a real accomplished piano player. Okay. He gets a real accomplished piano player to go up on stage where everyone thinks they're going to see a performance. And they the, do. Yeah, and then it's they do see a performance, but they become the performance because the piano player doesn't actually play anything. It's just silence, and the audience becomes the instrument, which is just... (coughs) (coughs) Mm. (laughs) When is it going to start? Has it started? I don't understand. That's it. You're in it. You're in it. Sorry, I just grabbed these seats just now. You're not in it, man. You are it. (laughs) Why'd you put on clothes? Anyway, so yes, you can find the meaning of art everywhere. It can be anything and anyone can do it. Or rather, everyone can be involved in it and is encouraged to. So it's like, here, take this piano. Can you play it? Doesn't matter. Playing the piano is not the art. Now take this hammer, smash it to pieces. Do this in front of people as a demonstration or an event. The sounds of the piano being hit, the reactions from the audience, all that put together, we got ourselves some new art stew. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, so the the audience is obviously heavily involved in the Fluxus art because it's meant for that. It's not meant to be like, oh, this is just a cool thing to do, like cool kids club stuff. It's for everyone. So like Yoko Ono's cut piece where she would sit completely still on a stage while people would come in one by one with scissors and cut a piece of her clothing. Mm -hmm. Just take a little bit of her and then in a line. And in that in itself, there's there's art and there's even a point to it because it does sound ridiculous. It does sound like you're watching a guy get a haircut. Yeah. And that's it. Or another person is laying down and taking a nap for 30 minutes. And so people realize, like, what's the difference between nonsense 
and um, art. Yeah. I think a little bit of, of it is, can you pull it off? Is it elegant? Yeah. Right? Like Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman's work is very much like Fluxus. Oh, absolutely. And then, yes, YouTube that. It's yeah. great. It's all great <laughs> stuff. I watched it like since I was a kid. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Andy Kaufman's stuff is great. And, and this is kind of a, you know, this is a continuance of like, you know, the Dada movement post-World War One. you know, where mm-hmm. they're just doing ridiculous shit all the time, putting a toilet in a uh, in an art gallery and saying, art, like, check yeah. it out. And- well, it's, yeah, exactly. Because it's one of those things like, I don't want you to just stare at every brushstroke I make and see what symbolizes the red in this. Mm-hmm. Instead, fuck you, here's a urinal. <laughs> this <laughs> yeah. is what I think about what you guys think about art. Yeah, my favorite Fluxus piece by far is, a, it, I think it was called Matchbox or something like that, where it's just, it's, it's a matchbox that's just given out to people and the instructions on it are use the first match to burn a museum. Use the <laughs> second one to burn every painting you see. And then finally, when you get to the last match, burn this box. Yes. It, it's so cool. So uh, one of the primary influencers of Flux's art was who you mentioned, John Cage, the avant-garde artist. And uh, he wasn't in Flux's. He was just the inspiration for it because mm. his biggest fan, George McCunius, was. So George was the guy who wrote the manifesto and instigated this whole movement, like putting together happenings or getting ready-mades and events and all those kind of things. And eventually making a co-op in Soho is now a neighborhood. Yeah. Good for us. But anyway, so John Cage, he, as you mentioned, like, he had a couple of famous pieces like the 433, which is actually on Spotify. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It is a track on Spotify with three movements. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, and also other Do you pieces. Do get dinner after this? <laughs> no, I already ate earlier. <laughs> forgot to call the center. Okay, so or he also, uh, John Cage also has another famous piece, like Water Music, which is a piece that involves a water pitcher, a goose call, an iron pipe, a bathtub, five radios, a stopwatch, a grand piano, and like five or ten other things. Mm-hmm. And he does this, it, like he, he makes all these like, sounds, and to that, I don't know, it's, it's just a lot of it is uh, not improvising because it, there is a lot of thought put into it, but also how the sound, like if you throw a ping pong ball into a bathtub, it makes a different sound every time. Yeah. So that's the whole point is that you're involving, everyone is involved in the, some kind of art that's new because everything that they're, he's doing is brand new at every moment. Yeah, and, and it's you know it's challenging the ideas of of what music is because you know it's it's taking all of these uh, objects and just like replacing a violin and replacing an oboe in an orchestra. You know, it's the same type of thing, and all of these things are like required for this piece. Uh, just like you know, a piano and a violin and an oboe and all this shit is required for a classical music piece. Uh, but it's also just noise and it's challenging the idea of like what music is what is it <laughs> we can't get into it yeah, there's that's... so much fluxus history we can't really get into it yeah. but what is important is that john kale he learned all about fluxus while actually at goldsmith's at the teacher school he was a very big fan he was just like yes and i told him about the boats and everything and no one was going for it but he loved it because he john kale had spent his whole life since he was a little kid studying the classics and seeing how stuffy it can be and now now he's finally rejecting the old art and he wants in on this like new alternative way of creating music. So he became pen pals with John Cage. So when John Cale came to New York City, John Cage gave him Lamont Young's phone number. It's like, don't lose this. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hear a piece, a very short um, excerpt from yes. a long Lamont Young composition. 
and so on and so forth for 15 minutes. It goes on for a while, and that's uh, that's new art. Or, it's it's I mean, cool, though, because it, it slowly swells over 15 minutes. Like, there is intention behind it. It's not just one single drone. Like, it swells. There's a lot to it. Uh, and it's cool to sit and listen to. Like, I love shit like that. Just sit and li- It's just because it's just sound. It's noise. It's, it's uh, exploring uh, what sound can be, what music can be, and what you enjoy. Yeah, I wish like people at YouTube knew that because every five minutes I get an ad interruption of a chorus commercial of like, back in the New York groove. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm trying to enjoy the swelling of this music. <laughs> and I, you do need to get the whole feeling by listening to it uninterrupted, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and there are other people that like took that sort of like avant-garde drone type sound and like it turned it into new uh, and, and t- turned it into something that's a little more, I guess you would call listenable, like artists like Gavin Bryars, uh, who did Jesus Blood Never Failed Me Yet, which if you've never heard it, is a one of the most beautiful pieces of music that's ever been made. That's on Spotify as well. It's so fucking good. Um, uh, but Lamont Young is, uh, he's a part of this Fluxus movement, and that drone that he has is very important to John Cale. Yes, exactly. So Lamont Young, he he's kind of picking up a little bit where John Cage left off by by finding these new creative ways to experiment, like you said, like with like the drones and everything. And also just kind of experimenting with like minimalistic music just kind of being like we're gonna focus on this one note for the rest of the year guys because <laughs> <laughs> lamont young okay so the way he looked he's a very portly fellow mm-hmm. uh he always had a beard or mustache or a beard mustache combo mm-hmm. braided hair dressed in robes he made his own yogurt he only <laughs> ate organic food his place looked like a hashish den or a <laughs> turkish coffee shop mm-hmm. uh as i've been told uh everything was on the floor no chairs allowed no chairs allowed no. jesus you just sit there cross-legged, you know? I mean, which is the funny thing is because Lamont is actually a Mormon from Idaho uh, who grew up in California playing the saxophone. But wow. you know what? Everyone should be able to reinvent themselves. Yeah, of because course. Because I think this is Lamont Young's true form because he's been doing this for 50 years and he, he is to this day still alive yeah. downtown in the same house <laughs> right now at 84 years young. Still doing it. They call it the dream house. Like, you can go. And, yeah. and sometimes he's there. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Looking like a weird, uh, like avant-garde biker. <laughs> <laughs> and so John came in and, and, and started working with Lamont and, and just practicing every day for an hour and a half, every single day for a year and a half on all this droning. Mm-hmm. So Lamont Young brought in John Kay. I was like, hey, come practice with us. We, we practice every day. We have a very strict discipline. There's dumplings in a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy yourself. Because that's what they were doing. They were all part of a group because Lamont Young and his wife, Marion, and a bunch of people all sitting on pillows mm-hmm. uh, were part of this loose collective called the Theater of Eternal Music. And of course, the Theater of Eternal Music included John Kale. The Theater of Eternal Music got its name from an essay published by Lamont Young. It was seriously, it's one of the goofiest titles I've ever heard. Notes on the Theater of Eternal Music and The Tortoise, His Dreams and Journeys. (laughs) And of course, The Tortoise, His Dreams and Journeys, that was also the title of the composition that we played earlier by Ah. Lamont Young. Well, he really liked animals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he was big into tortoises, turtles, all that kind of stuff. He had a bunch, he had a colony of them all over the place. Now, the name Theater of Eternal Music only came after the group had been performing live for three years. Because back then in this scene, it wasn't cool to give your group a name. (laughs) 
But pretension aside, the theater of eternal music was enormously important when it came to what Kale would later do with the Velvet Underground. Within that collective, Kale formed a subgroup called the Dream Syndicate with another musician named Tony Conrad, who would eventually be in the Primitives with Lou Reed. Now, the members of the Dream Syndicate were motivated by a scientific and musical fascination with sound, and they spent hours learning sustained meditative chants, and more importantly, for John Cale's future musical accomplishments, drones. Tony Conrad also introduced John Cale to the electronic pickup with one little device that amplified Cale's viola to previously impossible levels the Dream Syndicate were able to produce enormous droning sounds for hours at a time during live performances that were often met with resounding boos from the audience. Well, that's because the audience is also involved. (laughs) It's like, thank you. That's exactly what we've been trying to tell you guys. This is wonderful. As you might guess, drone concerts with the Dream Syndicate didn't do a whole lot in the way of paying the bills. So John Cale started dealing drugs for Lamont Young. (laughs) Oh yeah, Lamont Young was also a drug dealer. I forgot to mention that in his bio. I mean, he was a very, very talented, it still is, avant-garde composer first. Drug dealer wasn't on his business card, yeah. you know, although I'm sure his business card was probably like a pet turtle. It's like, here, here's my business card. Just put it on the sidewalk on Church Street and it will take you to me. Figure but, it out, plebeian. Don't step on it. <laughs> OK, so Lamont, he was into dealing marijuana, pounds and pounds of marijuana, as well as opium and amphetamines. And I heard it was actually really good stuff. Good. So pass it along. Lamont's got the stuff. <laughs> anyway, so Lamont would call John up like he's Joe Pesci and good fellas and talking code like I want six bars of the Sonata for oboe (laughs) which was code for six ounces of opium (laughs) piano meant pot oboe was opium a bar was an ounce 16 bars with a movement which equaled a pound why aren't we playing music (laughs) anyway so John Cale a bunch of fucking nerds he's running drugs for Lamont Young until one day Lamont calls John and says, there's a customer downstairs banging on my door. Go get him. Take him to a phone to call me. So John goes down and tells the guy, hey, come with me. And then as soon as he turns, he feels a gun on his back. And all of a sudden, a bunch of police officers just rushed up and said, don't move. You're under arrest. Ha ha. We got him. We got Lamont Young. Well, John, a Welsh 22 year old is being carted off into jail because <laughs> it turns out that the guy that was buying drugs from John was a drug dealer who was cooperating with the cops to turn in Lamont Young, of mm-hmm. course. So the cops arrested the wrong guy. And so they let John out the next morning. Also, because uh, whatever little bit of pot he had turned out to be nothing. Yeah. So. And John Kale is actually, he's very lucky that he didn't get deported at this point. But but the thing is that John Kale, actually, when he first moved to America, he was issued a green card, which was just a miracle at the time. Well, he had a letter from Aaron Copeland Ah. who said, hey, can you let this guy stay? Give him a, you know, and which was amazing. A green card for John Kale really changed so many things as opposed to a student visa for two months. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Because he was able to live in America for the rest of his life. And uh, as long as he doesn't hold any government jobs and he's like, 
Fine with me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Aaron Copeland. Fanfare for the common man. The, <laughs> the opening to Saving Private Ryan is essentially that. Yes. I think it is that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but just look it up and you'll just notice it. It's like, oh, I've seen that in five million fucking movies. It's great. Yeah. It's wonderful. I, I Sometimes I write to it. Yeah. So after John skated from the drug charge, he moved into Tony Conrad's apartment on Ludlow Street in the Lower East Side, where they lived in an unheated three-room apartment on the top floor with electricity wired in from another apartment. Mm -hmm. And, of course, a shared bathroom down the hall. The cost? $25 a month. Wow, you've been ripped off. (laughs) They had to wear carpets as coats because they were so cold. Now, when John and Tony moved in together, John began exploring Tony's record collection, which didn't skew as arty as you might think. The two would spend hours listening to rock, pop, and country records. And Kale, in his way, found it all very, quote-unquote, interesting. Mm. Mm, How interesting. Mm. So when Terry Phillips, over at Pickwick Records, met John Kale and Tony Conrad at a party and told them he needed a backing band for this kid named Lou Reed, they figured it would be a fun way to explore this interesting world and to earn <laughs> a bit of cash in the process. It's great because John Kay was like, yeah, I've never played a guitar before, <laughs> but I'll do it. They, they even kept changing. Like they, they would switch instruments too. They'd be like, do you want to play the bass? I played the bass last time. <laughs> that, that's how great and amazing artists, like musicians that they were. It cannot be understated how talented of a multi-instrumentalist John Kale was. Yeah. Uh, and Tony Conrad for that matter. It also can't be understated just how mediocre of a guitarist Lou Reed was. Yes, he is just okay. (laughs) Now, when Lou Reed played the ostrich for Tony and John, they found that he'd composed the song using a guitar that had every string tuned to the same note, which impressed Tony and John because they'd been doing that same type of thing with their avant-garde work with Lamont Young. And even outside of the odd tuning, the ostrich and its B-side, Sneaky Pete, were both far stranger than anything else happening in pop music at the time. To put it into context, this was little more than a year after the Beatles had blown the lid off pop music with their debut, Please Please Me. But as groundbreaking as Love Me Do was, they weren't playing anything like Sneaky Pete. (laughs) I like that you're like, yeah, the Beatles are great, but they weren't like these guys. (laughs) (laughs) The Beatles are great, but can they do Sneaky Pete? But these bargain bin uh, rock stars? (laughs) They got something going on. Sneaky beat! <laughs> I got a fish traveling around the world.
I mean, the, the, the primitives were not entirely original. Like, uh, for example, like the ostrich, if you go back and listen to that, the hook from the ostrich is ripped directly from And Then He Kissed Me. That, oh, yeah, dun, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. It's the exact same fucking rip. It's the same thing. <laughs> well, it's cool. It's, it's still catchy. It's, I like it. It's I'm still, down with it. It's great. But to give you a better idea of the world that Tony Conrad and John Cale were coming from, at the same time that they were playing high schools in supermarkets in the tri-state area with the primitives, Tony Conrad was recording stuff like this. left his violins on all night (laughs) yeah it's called four violins and that's that's tony conrad but you can hear how tony conrad influenced john kale because those sorts of drones that you hear that shit is all over the first velvet underground record Mm -hmm. that's right so this promotional tour they they did as the primitives like they only lasted about a month or so until they realized it's not really picking up. Yeah. No one wants to do the ostrich. Yeah. <laughs> but but John and Lou became friends. They started hanging out together and pretty much soon realized that they each had something the other wanted to learn from. Mm-hmm. John was an accomplished classical musician who learned early on and through his time in the avant-garde scene how to improvise like musically in a way that's new and exciting. But John didn't know too much about rock music like Lou did. Mm-hmm. And Lou, he was experienced, but also, just as we said, okay at playing guitar. <laughs> Lou's real talent was also in improvising, but improvising with his lyrics. Yeah. He could freestyle and spit out words from his subconscious and tell a story while they jammed together. And they were really good, too. Like, he could take on characters and change them completely. One minute, he could be like a southern preacher, and then the next minute, he could just be like a guy walking down the street trying to score drugs. Yeah. And it'd always be something totally different, and it felt really insightful and smart. Yeah. And they were both at this time, John and Lou, they were both at the exact same age. They were 22 years old. And for the first time, they were both able to find someone on their level that they could learn from. So Lamont Young and Delmore Schwartz, they were great mentors, but now they could both connect by example and shared experience. And if they learn from each other with enough push and pull, they could do something that no one was doing at the time. Make rock music poetic, deliberate and insightful. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said at the beginning, it's like there, John Cale was the other half of the creative heart. Like, these were two pieces that fit together perfectly. John Cale's avant-garde background and Lou Reed's rock and roll background, somehow, like, it just, it formed something uh, that had never existed before, and it somehow fit together perfectly. These two completely disparate worlds uh, somehow just They were just attracted like moths to a flame. They really were. John Cale said that it was like they were made for each other Mm -hmm. from the beginning. 
And Lou Reed is, you know, remember, he's been the reason why he has this uh, ability is because he's been writing song after song after song for Pickwick Records, like just all in every single style that you can think of. And he's playing this music with John Cale, who knows no cliches, doesn't know anything. He's like, can I put some drone in this now? (laughs) Where do we go with this? Yeah. And he's also and John Cale is also editing Lou Reed. Uh, He's listening to what Lou Reed is bringing to the table uh, because Lou Reed, I mean, he's coming to this thing loaded <laughs> if you'll uh, excuse the pun oh, you, yeah. you, you son of a bitch <laughs> you managed to sneak it in there yeah he's coming to the table with I'm waiting for the man and heroin like mm. two of the best Velvet Underground songs ever he's already written those songs and John Cale's listening to it and he's not too impressed with Lou Reed's musicality but he hears the words he hears the lyrics and he points Lou Reed in the right direction now let's actually listen to an early recording back when the folk was still shining through pretty heavily. Because remember, Lou Reed was a Bob Dylan fan. He never admitted that he was uh, influenced by Bob Dylan. Not really. Uh, But he fucking was. (laughs) (laughs) Like, he he absolutely was in lyrics and I think he wanted to be the first. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like, enjoy that Nobel Prize, Zimmerman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because John Cale and Bob Dylan were the same age. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Lou Reed was just behind him. You know, and John Cale, like, when he heard Lou songs like he recognized that these lyrics they were unlike anything anyone had ever done in the realm of rock and roll but let's listen to the how these songs sounded way back when before the recording of the first album I mean, that's a song about going up to Harlem and buying heroin. Yeah. Plain and simple. There you go. It's right there. (laughs) Just just a few words. Yeah, just a few. Yeah, that's exactly what it's about. And and no one had ever, ever written a song like that before. At least not not any song that had ever been recorded. I mean, usually it's like a little cutesy or something like that, Mm -hmm. you know. There's euphemisms. Yes, exactly. But Mm -hmm. this is like real. Like, no, I'm actually standing here with money in my hands. (laughs) Like, he's drawing you a picture. Yeah. And you have to visualize it while you're listening to it. It's amazing. It's great. And also, that brings up to our next topic. (laughs) Another thing that John learned from Lou was doing hard drugs. Because even though John had dabbled in all kinds of drugs with Lamont Young and his crew, uh, John had never thought about doing heroin, but hey, now here we are. Uh, and Lou was the first one to introduce John to heroin, even injecting him for the first time. Yeah, I was about to say, very literally introduced him to it. Yes, injecting heroin into his arm. 
So they found another shared love, I guess you could say, <laughs> chasing that white dragon. Mm -hmm. Because remember, Lou still has the uncanny ability to bring out the worst in people. Yeah. He is a bad role model. <laughs> so they both get into drugs. Uh, they call themselves uh, the Falling Spikes. Mm -hmm. uh, from spikes from a needle, needle injecting heroin. They could have called themselves hepatitis <laughs> because what, that's what they both got immediately after this. But lucky for John that he got hepatitis uh, because he was about to get drafted into the war. Yeah. So I don't know why, but Lou was the best thing that ever happened to John <laughs> in so many ways. And since the both of them were starving artists in living in New York City and with no heat, barely any electricity, uh, they were also pushing away from their day jobs at this time, rehearsing more. They, they needed some money. So they started doing a little modeling on the <laughs> side for money. Uh, you know, nothing terrible. You yeah. know, you, you get your picture taken and then the National Enquirer pays you $15. And then the next edition, you're a gay junkie in a story yeah. or like, John was he was he was a gay junkie. Lou was a serial killer who got caught because he tape recorded the screams of his victims. <laughs> and mean, it was like the fifteen dollars. <laughs> and it's fun. I mean, it's and and it's not that exploitative. Like it's not like they're fucking going and modeling for the guy who used to run American Apparel. Like, <laughs> like you're right. This is actually. A little bit better. Yeah, it is. Not because you can go and pick up a National Enquirer and you can. It's like, what am I going to be this week? <laughs> <laughs> and also, I mean, they're selling plasma, too. Like, they're doing all the shit that you're supposed to do when you're like 22 and, yes. and on heroin. Yes, these are the follies <laughs> of the youth. My God, Marcus. I, I, I sold plasma for a time. <laughs> like, it's fine. It's it, You do it temporarily. It's okay. I understand. Yeah, except I did it for beer money. I just didn't do it for heroin money. <laughs> but the principle's the same. <laughs> I get it. Now, I'm waiting for the man and heroin were songs that Lou Reed had written before the partnership began, as I said. But once he and Kale started working together, Lou began to expand his subject matter beyond buying drugs and doing drugs. Oh, good. That's all we do all day. <laughs> In one song... Lou wrote lyrics inspired by a 19th century novel written by a Leopold von Sockemesock, for whom the term masochism is named. In the novel, called Venus in Furs, a nobleman named Severin is mocked, cuckolded, and whipped by his lover Wanda in what is a classic and highly agreeable sadomasochistic relationship. The song of the same name that came from this novel ended up being one of the oddest and best songs on the Velvet's debut. But in the beginning, it was a fairly stylistically straightforward English folk tune sung by John Cale, who in addition to being a multi-instrumentalist, also had a fucking beautiful singing voice. Of course he did. <laughs> shiny, shiny brutes of leather Whiplash girl child in the dark in bells your servant don't forsake him strike dear mistress cure his heart I am tired I am weary I could sleep for a thousand years a thousand dreams that would awake me Different colors made of tears Wow, he didn't become a lawyer or a doctor. 
<laughs> just give it a little bit more time, mother. Give it a little bit more time. Right now, I'm just doing some funny things with my friend alone in the dark. No, we don't have jobs. <laughs> well, they kind of have jobs. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, but, you know, at this point, like, they, they think, like, okay, at this point, John Kale technically has a better voice than Lou Reed. Mm-hmm. But Lou Reed has a more interesting voice than John Cale. Yeah, because, well, the thing is is that Lou insisted on having John sing it because Lou was still insecure about his own voice. Mm -hmm. He needed a little bit of encouragement from John. And this is something that we'll figure out as we go along is the fact that all these guys, they're all super cool, but everybody kind of needs a little like, you can do it, man. Mm -hmm. You can do it. Come on. Just do it. Oh, you're saying that every cool person is also fantastically and enormously uh, insecure? I'm very cool. <laughs> I am the coolest person in the world. <laughs> Except for John Coltrane. Oh, of course, of course, of course. And so eventually, like, they decided, like, yeah, Lou Reed is going to be our lead singer. You can't just write the songs. You got to fucking sing them. And, you know, the result is... So much better. Yeah, it all really fell into place. Yeah, and so let's hear that same song, but sung by Lou Reed on the Velvet Underground's debut album. Shiny, shiny, shiny boots of leather With flash girl child in the dark Comes in bells, your servant don't forsake They get so much better. <laughs> they get so, so much better. This is what John was picturing in his mind. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's my favorite Lou Reed song, song on the Velvet Underground and Eco, the first uh, debut, the debut album. I think it's my favorite one. Wow, how original. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just teasing because it's mine too. It's a, yeah. yeah, I know. God damn it. Yeah, we got married for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> now, while Lou and John were figuring out exactly what sort of band the Falling Spikes were going to be, Reed serendipitously reconnected with the future lead guitarist, 
of the Velvet Underground. Eternal student Sterling Morrison, whom Reed had jammed with occasionally at Syracuse University, was on the D train on his way to the City College of New York when he and Reed recognized each other and began talking. Now what Sterling Morrison brought to the table was pure talent. Sterling brought a piercing squeal heavily influenced by Mickey Baker, who is best known for being half of a duo called Mickey and Sylvia, who were, of course, the artists who produced a song that absolutely everybody knows and is surprisingly very Velvet Underground-ish when you listen (laughs) to it from this perspective. You can absolutely hear Sterling Morrison in this. I think we have played that song like twice before. Yeah, uh, but... yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> uh, it's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. I, I love every part of that song. We can play it again. Yeah, I'm, and I'm sure we will. But that that song is like so uh, amazing when you think about the fact that you know, like Mickey uh, Baker is such a huge influence on the Velvet Underground, and Sylvia Robinson, of course, the Sylvia of Mickey and Sylvia, went on to found Sugar Hill Records. That's you right. Know, like, yeah. Who was you know like put up Sugar Hill gang, like one of the the first hip hop label ever. Like that's crazy how much rock and how much 20th century music comes from love (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i i always dance on the floor when this happens of course now before long sterling was playing come here lover boy (laughs) okay before long (laughs) sterling that in (laughs) for long sterling was playing guitar in sessions with john kale and lou reed and the Velvet Underground came that much closer to filling out their classic lineup. Right now, it's Morrison, Kale, and Reed. All they needed at that point was a drummer. And the person who would fill the spot before their... Hey! I'm here! Hi! <laughs> what? what? Can I... I'm just going to sit here. Oh, go ahead. Continue. And... Let me interrupt. <laughs> and the person who would fill the spot before their permanent percussionist was a stereotypical proto-hippie named Angus McLeese. That's me! (laughs) I don't know why I make him loud. (laughs) Who published poetry, played experimental music with Lamont Young, and most importantly, lived across the hall from John and Lou on Ludlow Street. That's true. He did live uh, down the hall. And he lived uh, rent-free, actually. Uh, because... Oh, he didn't have to pay the $25 a month? <laughs> no. Well, he made a deal with the landlord to renovate the apartment, which he never really did, because he was too busy <laughs> with his poetry and his music and all the things that he was doing, working with Yoko Ono and Lamont Young. He, he really had no time for anything. But that was part of his thing, though. Like, he was a 
a big sponge for everything. He yeah. he was one of those people who just tr- roamed around the world. Like he he traveled everywhere, Nepal, Paris, Greece, India, Pakistan, everywhere just picking up techniques and and studying. He he's a guy, he's that kind of guy who has like 20 degrees. Yeah. He's studied everything like jazz and freeform percussion, medieval European dance music, Latin and ballroom drumming, everything. He knows everything. He's worked in everything. And, and as you said, published a few poetry books. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them I like uh, called Year, where every page he gives a name to the day of the year okay. for 360. So he names the day. Oh, so he names like September 24th. Uh, Susan. Owl. <laughs> um, or Iron Keeled Pentecost. Oh, what, the, what date is that? I don't know, like August 25th. <laughs> oh my God, that's like the day after my birthday. And then, you know, there are other names like uh, Second Day. Mm, okay. Third Day. <laughs> you know, you know, and then so on and so forth. Someone finished that for me. Yeah. Anyway, so being a drummer for the Velvet Underground is just one of those things he just did it's <laughs> one of them okay because that's angus angus just wandered into their apartment while the three of them were just rehearsing and he just came in with some, i have some tablets with me and he just started just playing with some hand drums like dribbling along with the guys and he was a fantastic drummer yeah probably from all that schooling and traveling mm-hmm. or how angus puts it i'm influenced by the sound of falling rain <laughs> jesus fucking christ that's a direct quote <laughs> Would you like another dumpling from the bucket? No? Well, good, because I have to use the bucket. That's Angus. I mean, I wish Angus McLeese, I wish that his drumming would have been uh, recorded. Uh, Don't need to. I already know how good I am. I mean, everyone everyone said, like, Angus McLeese, like, the way he would play drums was unlike anyone else on Earth. But it worked. Like, it wasn't just a complete and total mess. Like, he just had, his brain was wired up differently than everyone else. But those uh, demos that we heard earlier, the demo of Venus and Furs and the demo of I'm Waiting for the Man, that was John Cale, Lou Reed, and Sterling Morrison. Angus McLeese was supposed to be there. I'm not here. <laughs> but what is that? Anyways. But Angus just didn't show up that day. I am here. <laughs> but not there. Yeah, because, I mean, he is he was considered a proto-hippie. You know, this is before, really, the hippie movement came. Remember, this is like 1965, 1964, uh, I think 1965 at this point. Um, My physical form wasn't there, though. <laughs> I'm sorry, continue. Yeah, uh, but yeah, not surprisingly, a man considered a proto-hippie was a bit of a fucking flake. <laughs> <laughs> he had things to do. He was the super of an apartment. <laughs> kind of. That he never worked on. I know. No, but he was busy. He had too many jobs, which, funny enough, he had no job. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Now, The Falling Spikes is not the greatest band name in the world, nor was their second choice, The Warlocks. And quick side note, I think this is just this is an interesting bit of music trivia. The Warlocks was also the original name for The Grateful Dead, who released their debut album that was on the other side of the drug spectrum yes. just five days after The Velvet Underground released theirs in March of 1967. But as far as the final name of the band went... We know that it came from a 1963 paperback reporting on paraphilia in America, from husband and wife swapping to group sex, orgies, sadomasochism, and homosexuality, which back then was thought of as a fetish by many people. <laughs> you mean it's a novel? Yeah. <laughs> You're making it like, and they were reporting all of these things. It's not a novel. It is actual reporting. Oh, I thought it was a novel. No, it's it's an actual report. Like it is a, a an, it's a nonfiction book. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I'll look into it then. <laughs> it's supposed to be pretty bad. <laughs> okay. But the real strength of this book was the eye-catching cover. It featured a whip, a high-heeled fetish shoe, a key, and a Zorro mask with copy that read, Here is an incredible book. It will shock and amaze you. But as a documentary on the sexual corruption of our age, it is a must for every thinking adult. And written above all that, in a mysterious, sexy font, was the title, The Velvet Underground. That does sound good. I'm going to buy that book. <laughs> Now, Tony Conrad maintains that he found a copy of this book lying in the street on the Bowery in the Lower East Side, while Angus's wife maintains that it was Angus who found it in a bookstore. It's also said that the band found it when Tony moved out of the Ludlow Street apartment, while other times they'll say that Tony brought it into the apartment and the band immediately loved the title and said, we're called the Velvet Underground now. <laughs> but no matter how it happened, after a brief period as the Velvet Hermaphrodite Jug Band, which really? may or may not have been a joke. Yes, exactly. Thank you. I was going to say. <laughs> Lou Reed, John Cale, Sterling Morrison, and Angus McLeese finally became the Velvet Underground, and they began playing shows at underground film screenings. Yeah, and it was a lot of just jamming and improvising together while the black and white movie played. Because uh, these are these screenings, so they're standing like maybe in front of the, the screen or maybe behind or to the side. Their music is accompanying like the underground films that their friends would make. You know, their friends being like Piero Helixer, Jack Smith, Barbara Rubin. These are all big names in the underground film scene. Yeah. It's a cool thing, you know, so it's, it's a cool thing. No big deal. You know? <laughs> so they start playing at these screenings in the summer of 1965 as a Velvet Underground. And it was later on in the year when they met Al Aronovitz, a well-connected music journalist who was managing a local band called Middle Class. So they're middle class with a Y. Yes. Yeah. Not the middle class out of Vogue. Yeah. No, no. Middle class with a Y in 1965. Yeah. And quick note, uh, middle class, one of the uh, producers on that was Carol King. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Tapestry. Yeah. Yeah. She's very good. <laughs> she is very actually, good. Actually, she is good. I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny. Yeah. She's very good. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, their mutual friend, Barbara Rubin, told Al, hey, come to the screening of my movie and check this band out called The Velvet Underground. They are amazing. And according to Al, he thought they were shit. <laughs> but fine. You know, whatever, I'll meet them, I'll go to them, I'll meet them and offer to manage them. You know, I'm managing this other band called Middle Class with a Y and they can open. And you know what? The Velvet Underground can open for them at a gig in New Jersey. I can give them $75 that they they can split between the four of them. So the Velvet Underground, finally, they have a paying gig. Yeah. Finally. Hell yeah. And Lou and John and Sterling were down with that, but Angus wasn't Mm. because that goes against his principles. (sighs) Okay. Right. <laughs> what the fuck are his principles? Tell me what dumb shit thing his principles. What are his principles? It's, it, you're, you're putting business into it. Uh-huh. That's the oh, thing. Oh, into the art. You're, yes, making, mo- exactly. you're making money. Okay. And so the guys were probably like, okay, fine. Well, why, we don't have to pay you then. <laughs> <laughs> Just be there at eight. And Angus said, what do you mean, eight? What is eight? <laughs> if there is space and there is time and art lives in space then time does not live here. What? (laughs) I'm sorry. My physical form cannot materialize at the Summit High School Gymnasium at eight. Because it is simply an illusion. He didn't believe in time. I'm just kidding. Okay, okay. No, he seriously didn't believe in time. That's not true. We're just having fun. Angus knew what time it is. It's... The thing is that he, Angus didn't want to be constricted by the human construct that we call time. Okay? Yes, yeah. But really, really, he just didn't want to involve business in his work. You know, no business allowed. So Angus bowed out and quit the band and said, go ahead without me. See how much fun it is to take something you love and make it a job, Carolina Marcus. <laughs> how sorry for you. What a pity. What a pity. What a pity. <laughs> like, I came up with the Blue Man Group. That was me. Yes. And now look at it. What a pity. <laughs> And, and, and the three of them was just like, we're going to soldier on because that's $75. Yeah. And Angus Malik McLeese like ended up dying of starvation in Nepal. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, he did many, many years later in 1979. Uh, but he, you know, he, he I, I do feel like he was an f- extremely talented guy who who I we, we just take too many liberties with him. Yeah. But, but yeah, it is a human construct. He is right. Yeah, I, I know he's a human guy, but it's it's like we say, it's like me and Ben over the last podcast, it's, it's like uh, the agreement that we came upon is that time is an illusion, but schedules are very real. <laughs> schedules and appointments are very real. Yes, I will concede that time is an illusion. Schedules, on the other hand, concrete. All right, now you're bleeding onto this show. <laughs> Now, Angus's departure left the band in one hell of a bind because like so, so, so many of the bands we covered in season one, the band's drummer had left just before their first actual gig. So Lou and Sterling called up their other college friend, Jim Tucker, and asked to be put in contact with Jim's drummer sister, Maureen, known affectionately as Mo. Now, even though the initial decision to bring Mo Tucker into the band was a matter of expedience rather than artistic compatibility, the androgynous Tucker ended up being the perfect drummer for the Velvet Underground. Instead of sitting behind a standard trap kit with hi-hat cymbals, snare, tom, and kick, Tucker stood for every gig, had no cymbals at all, played the snare as a high tom, and placed the bass drum on its side so she could strike it with mallets. 
This raw simplicity gave the drumming on the Velvet Underground's first record an almost human quality, as if the percussion were a golem created by Mo Tucker to wander the stage and fill out the characters Lou Reed was singing as. That's cool. Yeah, thank you. See, <laughs> See, Mo Tucker knew drums, but we're not talking like John Bonham, Keith Moon, Ringo Starr. We're not talking rock and roll drummers. After Mo showed up at Lou and John's apartment to hear them play, she picked up the sound of the Velvet Underground immediately. But instead of using rock rhythms, she used beats that were influenced by a Nigerian drum virtuoso named Babatunde Olatunji. First part, that's pure fucking Mo Tucker. I love it. It like tickles my brain in a good way. Yeah, and that whole album is uh, really fucking good. Uh, I would recommend it uh, for anybody who's uh, into percussion and drums. It's called Drums of Passion. But that first meeting where she played that beat, that was the afternoon of the first Velvet Underground show. The first and only time that the classic lineup of Reed, Kale, Tucker, and Morrison played together before they walked out Onto the stage at Summit High School. Yeah. <laughs> we got to start somewhere. It, and, and they did. On December 11th, 1965, they get on stage. Two of them are wearing sunglasses because they're very cool. Mm -hmm. And John with his long, long hair. And Mo standing there with her drums looking very androgynous. Is it a girl? Is it a boy? We don't know. It's interesting, though. Mm -hmm. And all of them with expressions of, yeah. We're the Velvet Underground. Yeah, fuck you. We're the Velvet Underground. This is what we used to be called Mrs. Spiral. That, that kind of thing. <laughs> anyway, here's Venus and Furs. 
and then just a blast of <gasps> screeching music and rhythmic pounding and several decibels higher than anyone wanted. <laughs> and everyone in the school, kids, parents, and faculty just staring in shock at the band playing with like their heads like tilted back from the noise because the, there's drones as well. And then when the song ended, they're like the, the audience, they were just very relieved for a minute. And they're like, whoo, so yeah, my ear too. Yeah, you too. <laughs> and then Lou said, this next one is called heroin. <laughs> Come on. We've all been there. And then the music got all intense all over again. Yeah. And by then, most of the audience said, that's it. <laughs> We're leaving. And they walked. They left the show, the school. They went home. <laughs> they were done. But you see, the Velvet Underground wasn't. They were just beginning. But then after another song or two, yeah, they were done. <laughs> but they looked up and they saw that most of the chairs were empty. And they looked at each other and said, wow, we did that. And they're like, what, walk the room? Like, no, no, we played a real gig. Yeah. That's great. And walking the room was just a bonus, really. <laughs> and Al said, okay, well, you screwed it up for my other band, the middle class <laughs> with the Y, who's yeah, you, on next. You're the opening band, you fuckheads. <laughs> <laughs> but at least, he, this is what Al said, you gave them a night to remember. You did. And he invited everyone over to his house, to Al's casa, and to have a celebratory spaghetti dinner. <laughs> And the band's like, yeah, thanks, coach. When's the next gig anyways? Yeah, and uh, actually at that show, uh, the bassist for Mission of Burma was at the first Velvet Underground show. He was like, what, 12 or 10 or something like <laughs> yeah. that? He said it changed his life forever. Uh, and if you've never heard Mission of Burma, just start with that's when I reach for my revolver and just fucking go from there. Mm -hmm. So emboldened by what they perceived to be a highly successful first show, the Velvet Underground pressed on and were given a residency in Greenwich Village at Cafe Bazaar, which, despite its storied history as a folk venue, had become a tourist trap by the time the Velvet Underground arrived. Now, by 1965, the Velvet Underground had written a fair amount of original tunes, and they were writing even more in the rock and roll vein now that Sterling Morrison was contributing. But the song that irked most people during live performances, especially Cafe Bazaar management, was Black Angel's Death Song. Myriad choices of his fate set themselves out upon a platform to choose. What had he to lose? Not a ghost bloody country all covered with sleep where the Black Angel did weep. Not an old city street in the east. And Warren's brother walked on through the night with his hair in his face, long along smith and cut from the knife of duty. The rally man's patter ran on through the dawn until we said so long to his skull. Shrill yell. Shining brightly red-rimmed and red-lined with the time Abused with the choice of the mine on ice skate scraping chunks From the bills
Now, Black Angel's death song, without a doubt, had its roots in the avant-garde scene. I mean, you can hear, like, Tony Conrad's four violins in that very easily. Mm -hmm. But while it only lasted three minutes and 12 seconds when it was laid down on wax, it could go on for as long as 30 to 40 minutes in a live setting. I mean, that I love that song. It's own, yeah. but, but I love it for three minutes. Like, I can't do for 30 fucking minutes. Well, it's the whole the whole point is the experience of that. Like, that's something that was interesting that I that I read about with all this experimental music is like you're supposed to go through all the motions. So I'm yeah. like, man, I'm tired. Man, I'm really frustrated. God, I hate this. I need to leave. And then later acceptance of like, oh. I've just found a new part of myself. Yeah, yeah. But if you don't have time for that, yeah, okay, just get three minutes. <laughs> I get it. No, it's it's almost uh, meditative. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Now, after a relatively short period at Cafe Bazaar, the Velvet Underground were getting tired of playing multiple shows six nights a week, including a show that they were forced to play on Christmas Eve. The Velvet Underground also kept playing Black Angel's death song whenever they felt like it to the amusement of almost no one. <laughs> well, I mean, there are all these tourists coming in, like writing postcards and be like, what are they doing? <laughs> yeah, no one, no one liked it. And the owner of Cafe Bazaar told them that if you play that fucking song one more time, your ass is on the street. Got it, boss. <laughs> so figuring that they could both keep their artistic integrity and get out of playing their upcoming New Year's Eve gig, the Velvet Underground opened their very next show with Black Angel's Death Song <laughs> <laughs> and were immediately released from their Cafe Bazaar obligations. But while this sounds like just another story of the trials and tribulations of a groundbreaking band trying to find their audience, the Cafe Bazaar residency was perhaps the most important run of shows that the Velvet Underground would ever play. See, in the audience at Cafe Bazaar, for at least one of these shows, was pop art legend Andy Warhol. And luckily for the Velvet Underground, Andy was highly impressed with what he saw. Yeah, I mean, it's Andy Warhol. It's fucking Andy Warhol. That's the thing. That that was the reason why John was dreaming about going to New York. Because somebody like Andy Warhol can step in and sit down and watch you play. It's a possibility. Yeah. So Andy Warhol, or born as Andrew Warhola, mm-hmm. which I love. Ooh, Warhol. Warhol. Uh, Warhola is such a whole... I get why he did Warhol. Well, I mean, he he was a uh, Sl- Slovakian. Yeah. His parents were uh, immigrants, Slovakian Im- immigrants, uh, and actually, he was from Andrew Warhol is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, he's a Pittsburgh boy. As I'm saying, everyone who comes to New York in some way or another, if you want to, you can totally reinvent yourself. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you don't have to be fucking Warhola Asahola from fucking Pittsburgh. Like. <laughs> oh, God, that's good. Okay, so Andy, he moved to New York City when he was 21, 22, worked as a commercial artist for a bunch of big name clients like Columbia Records, Glamour Magazine, Vogue, Tiffany's. Like, he was he was sought after after a while, and he established himself as, like, the graphic artist to go to. Yeah. And then after that, he started exhibiting, like, his paintings and, and becoming one of the leaders of the pop art movement, mm-hmm. which is a lot... Like kind of like the same idea of bringing like low art into high art. Yeah. You know, get this Campbell's soup can. We'll talk a lot about it in the next episode. And then just bam, make it a painting and put it on the wall of a museum. Yeah. There we go. This is what I think. And Andy also, his other talent was the fact that he was an amazing schmoozer. Yeah. You see, he was extremely well connected. He knew everybody. And most importantly, everyone knew him. So when Andy Warhol's name pops up somewhere, people want to go and see what he's doing. Yeah. And the reason why Andy 
is showing up at this early Velvet Underground show is such a big deal is because even though he doesn't show it at first, he soon very quickly sees the attraction in the Velvet Underground. They're playing great music that no one else is doing. It's an art. And Andy Warhol would soon put his name on that. Mm-hmm. And that's where we'll pick back up for part three with Andy Warhol's Factory, the recording of the debut Velvet Underground record, and of course, Nico. <laughs> Andy. <laughs> you haven't checked the tour we We always make Nico at home. We always make Nico like another roommate. For some reason, Nico's funny as a roommate. <laughs> you know? Well, it comes from the Stooges episode. Yeah. When, when she lived with the Stooges at the fun house. Yeah, yeah. So we've been doing this for two years. Every time it's like, Marcus, the plumber is coming between 10 and 2. <laughs> Carolina. The dog did not defecate this morning. (laughs) Make sure to take her to the park. (laughs) Anyway, so we should end this now. (laughs) And that's episode two. Yep. Of the Velvet Underground. Thank you to everybody who's given to our Patreon. If you want to give to our Patreon and get early access to episodes, as well as a bi-weekly music news show called New Arrivals, Go to patreon.com slash no dogs in space. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at no dogs pod. Absolutely. And remember, if you make music or noise or sounds of any kind and you want us to play it at the end of every episode, please send it to no dogs in space at gmail.com and we will listen to it and hopefully we'll play it at the end of the episode. Yeah. And this next band, actually, this band did not send us uh, their uh, album. We actually got this from a very nice woman that we met in Denver Yeah, uh, when we were there for our last podcast on the left show. Uh, we met, what was the name of that place? Goldmine, Goldmine Vintage out yeah. in uh, Denver. Super cool place. Very nice people. Uh, but the uh, woman that we met, she sent us her twin sister's band out of Los Angeles. They're called Nightmare Blue. This is some cool they fucking rock. shit right here. Yes. This is very, very fucking cool. So we're going to play their song, Trouble. It's available on Spotify. Uh, and of course, speaking of Spotify, you can go uh, search my name, Marcus Parks, on Spotify to find playlists for every single episode of No Dogs in Space that we've ever done. Uh, any music that's available on Spotify will be available on the playlist. Uh, so if you want to check out more from this band, go check out the playlist. Uh, and or just... You you know, you got to listen to them right now. You yeah, listen to them and it. see if you like them. And I, I'm willing to bet you will. <laughs> and don't forget, we have No Dogs t-shirts. Yeah. No Dogs in Space t-shirts that are available at lastpodcastmerch.com. They're yes. brand new shirts. Uh, they're much more of a punk style. They're super fucking cool. I love it. Yeah. So go check them out. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye.
Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 